You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Felicia, and this episode features part two of my interview with executive coach, actor, director, and filmmaker, Dr. Karen Baptiste. In the latter half of our conversation, Dr. K continues to break down how existing education policies are designed to funnel children of color and children with special needs into the criminal justice system. She also discusses the work that has already been done to manifest her vision for her documentary, From Preschool to Prison. Dr. K's work in this space is eye-opening to say the least. So without further ado, please take a listen. And there are some people who will hear this and say, okay, Dr. K, okay, I get what you're saying. I understand the similarities, but that's just teaching kids discipline. That's Mm -hmm. just teaching them about order and scheduling and how to plan your day and how to follow rules. What do you say to those detractors? No, that's teaching them whiteness. Mm. That's teaching them how to assimilate to what white people deem appropriate behavior and culture. Because what, what we have happening now is the majority of teachers hired in black and brown schools are white teachers. And you, when you look at the, the build of schools, the light, it, it, how it looks like prisons, the principal is the warden, the teachers are the correction officers, and they are the overseers there. We're going to expose you to culture while we continue to oppress your culture. Mm-hmm. We're going to teach you how to code switch. Why the hell we got to learn how to code switch? Who came up with that? White mm-hmm. people. Why do we have to code switch? White people have never been told they have to learn how to code switch. Never. So we're constantly told something is wrong with us. You can't wear your hair that way. I mean, when you start to unpack all these policies in school, there are rules on hair, uniform. Everything is to get us in a place where you have to just know how to take discipline. You have to know how to just follow rules and assimilate. That's no different than being in prison. Mm-hmm. And I no want to go. <laughs> I want to go back to to the standardized tests because I, I see this conversation a lot online. Having gone to PWIs and being connected to mm-hmm. a lot of successful white folks, and they have their views about woke culture. Um, and people don't really understand the biases with regard to standardized tests. And I've seen it. I've seen the statuses on social media. Like y'all are going too far now. Like woke culture has gone too far. If you think it's standardized because a black student can't pass a standardized test, if that test is, is biased against them, you're crazy. Now they have no data, no facts, but I want to educate here too. So if you can expound a little bit more on this concept of biased standardized testing, I think it's important for people to hear that. I'm going to just make this as plain as simple. When you are giving a test to kids on things that they have never been taught Mm -hmm. and then they fail, that is where the bias comes in. That's how these tests are designed. The tests are designed with things that are not even brought into our community. Mm. Do you speak German? No. So imagine I gave you a test in German. Right. I would have no clue what was going on. You failed this test. It just reinforces the nonsense I already put out to the public about you. See, Mm -hmm. told you she's not capable. She can't pass. So essentially, we're giving kids a bunch of exams that are not even in the language that they know and understand and speak. Mm. And we wonder why they're not passing. Right. And then on top of that, we put the most ineffective or unqualified and or even not even certified teachers in the highest need communities. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if any pre-med students doing brain surgery. Mm. And and listen, like, I couldn't be farther from education, but I get invited in, right, to do these career days and pre-pandemic and all of that. And, And I've been to school in the Bronx. I've been, you know, all over the place. And you have those couple of teachers who, you know, you can see the fire in them Mm -hmm. and they're passionate and they're skilled Mm -hmm. and they want to be there and they want to help these kids. But I'm just speaking anecdotally. Mm -hmm. The majority of the teachers that I have run into in these environments fall into two categories. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just trying to get to retirement. Mm-hmm. I don't care what these kids do. Or I'm half scared of them and I'm completely ill-equipped. Yeah. And so let me, yes. Yes. And so I'll speak to the ones that I'm scared of them. You're only scared of what you don't know. Mm. There's no relationship there. Mm-hmm. When I have teachers coming in and you're scared of five-year-olds, I've had teachers literally run out of the classroom and tell me that they were scared of five-year-olds. Then I, I, I just go in and I'm like, if they were white five-year-olds, would you be scared of them? Mm-hmm. Why are you scared of them? What have they done to you? And 100% of the time it's come back as nothing, but it goes back to what they've been fed either through their families, community, school, the media. Why are you fearful of children? (laughs) I mean, and then when I put it that way, oftentimes I've gotten those that would laugh and be like, wow, that does sound silly. Yeah, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Have you had a conversation with them? Mm -hmm. They're so inquisitive. They want to learn so much. And most children, for the most part, children want to impress their teachers. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is you don't present me any information about me. The only information that you present about me is that we were slaves, that we were descendants of slaves. So think about if that's your introduction. And then I never see anybody that looks like me in your position or in position of power. Or I see very few and far in between that look like me. Why would I be interested in wanting to learn anything? Mm -hmm. So now I get labeled as disengaged. I get labeled as lazy. I get labeled as stupid. I'm not incapable of sitting here taking a test. I don't want to take your stupid test. Why? Because you don't respect me. You don't have a relationship with me. And that's the behavior we get in return from kids. But then on top of it, they get labeled as being dumb. And then they're placed in special education. Right. Or... Immediately it goes to they have a conduct disorder. Yeah. Let them see a psychiatrist. Yeah. Let's see what we can get them on. We're not built to sit for long periods of time. As Black people, rhythm, movement, dance is an innate, natural part of who we are. Right. But then we are told we need to sit for seven hours a day mm-hmm. and not move. And if you move, something must be wrong with you. Right. And I think, too, to our community's detriment, though, those of us who've been able to make it through and thrive, mm-hmm. we're held up as the standard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, see, it's possible. Oh, yeah. This person made it out of the worst possible neighborhood of this terrible school and yeah. what have you, or this person got bust over here and has completely assimilated and integrated yeah. just majority of white environment and is thriving and is in tech and STEM mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. So there's that narrative as well. You become the magical yes. black kid. Yeah, only two people types of people say that. Racist people and ignorant people. Because mm-hmm. we get black people that make those comments too. Oh, absolutely. So we get the ignorant people and then we have the racist people who make those comments. Mm-hmm. Right? Because at the end of the day, I, you know, I say this to people all the time, like my path was not your path. Who I got connected to and what resources I got exposed to was not your path. So because I made it doesn't mean you're going to make it. Mm-hmm. We have people who have been innocently shot and killed every single day in our community. Every day. Because I walked home from school. Right. You, you see what, so it's like what, what happened for you is not what's going to happen for me. And a lot of times what's happening in our community is we just don't know. We just literally don't have the information. And so oftentimes you can't even seek out information on what you don't even know what to seek out information on. Right. So imagine if I tell you, right, you have different levels of not knowing. Everybody can say, can name something that they don't know how to do, right? Like everybody can name something they don't know how to do. I don't know how to fly a plane. I can name that. Mm -hmm. Nobody can name what they don't know that they don't know how to do. If I said to you, tell me something you don't know that you don't even know you don't know. Nobody can name that. (laughs) Right. So you think about in our community, like there are things that people don't even know exist. So they don't even know how to inquire about it because they don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. And if, if your whole life you've lived in your zip code only, then you're just being reinforced with the same type of people around you. So that's all you know. And it takes one person, that one person, whether it's a teacher, a neighbor, it, you never know. It takes one person to spark that curiosity inside of a child 
and to believe in that child to get them to, to, to new levels. A lot of people don't understand when they talk about these kids don't care about school. They absolutely do care about school. But when I've had to dodge bullets to get to school, I haven't eaten. My house was on fire. I'm living in a group home. I'm living in a shelter. I just saw my father beat my mother's brains out. I was molested last night. All kinds of things happening to children that some adults have never had to go through in their entire life. My only state of mind right now when I sit in this classroom is survival, not your math lesson. That's it. And that's what they fail to realize. And they discount that experience that our kids are coming in with and immediately go to, they don't care. Mm -hmm. So why don't you switch lives with this kid for a day? None of them would dare. I ask teachers all the time, how many of you went and knocked on their door? How many of you have ever been to their homes? What? Their homes? Go to their home. Well, why not? Aren't you here to serve? Aren't you here to advance the community? They don't. You don't have a relationship with us. So if there's no relationship, and I always say when kids trust you, they'll learn from you. Absolutely. When they don't trust you, they don't want to learn from you. So there's a wall now. They shut down. Mm -hmm. Because you already came in and told me everything about me is wrong. The way I speak is wrong. The way I dress is wrong. The way my hair look is wrong. The music I listen to is wrong. You already told me everything about me is wrong. And I'm going to shove all this white literature and history down your throat. Right. So why would I be interested? And that's what our kids deal with in school. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember last year, DeMarcus and I were doing some philanthropic work and we, we partnered with an organization that's been in the community for four decades, right? Four or five decades. And we said to them, give us 10 families that, that we can serve and provide back to school supplies for and food and grocery gift cards, grocery store gift cards and all this stuff. And we're not, we're not that far removed from struggle, right? Mm-hmm. We, we have our own stories or what have you, but sometimes you, you get your career set up and you, you get in your momentum and you forget what's mm-hmm. happening. You, you know it, right? And, and, and from a logical level, but you're not yeah. living in it. And we were going to, it was during COVID, so we were prepared to do these contactless deliveries. And the, the, one of the executives from the organization said, I'll send you a spreadsheet with the address, you know, the kids' names, their ages, their parents, what have you. And she said, I'm going to add some notes. If you have any questions or you need my help, give me a call. I said, okay. She said, and she kept saying, the day of, if you need my help, give me a call. And I'm like, why does she keep saying that? Until I saw the spreadsheet and it was all the notes on each family. Hmm. This, this mother struggles with alcoholism and mm-hmm. this mother works three jobs and doesn't often have anybody to watch her kids. So the kids might be home alone, but they're not going to answer the door. Mm-hmm. This person may not have custody right now. You may have to call her mom. This one has uh, this person in their home who's on parole, but they're in public housing. So that's not necessarily something that should be happening. That's also not the kid's mom. I mean, the kid's parent and there's seven other children. In that. And I'm reading this. And I'm like, okay, all of this is happening in your house. Mm-hmm. You're in a terrible school district. Mm-hmm. You're getting the support from one organization and you're getting like this one time, quote unquote, blessing from us. Mm-hmm. But how do you survive in that environment and how do you thrive? Right. Mm-hmm. And then you show up. And to your point about have you ever gone to these kids' homes? You show up and you meet these people who are that look like me. Right. And they're mm-hmm. grateful and they have so much joy. And we have this great banter and we're, you know, we're having this whole conversation and they're so thankful and whatever. And they feel like, oh, it's one of ours helping us now. This is amazing. But I'm looking at them and I'm noticing the yellowing of the eyes and other mm-hmm. things. And I'm like thinking to myself, when's the last time you had proper health care? Hmm. You know, what is that doing to your lifespan? Right. Mm-hmm. And is your, do you have heat? Like all these questions and the things that I'm thinking and, and, and to your point earlier, like when all of that gets, when you start to witness that and think about all those issues, it is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And you understand that this is a multifaceted problem mm-hmm. and it goes beyond curriculum and it, it, it goes beyond the right kind of teacher. It, there's so many things that are working against our success and our ability to advance that nobody wants to talk about. And, and and everything is, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and if you just work a little harder and if you just pray, it's all going to be okay. But these socioeconomic factors are so complex and so nuanced and it's not something that any one person can solve. Yeah. People don't so, know. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you hit that nail on the head. Like our brains can actually change based on the environment that we are in. Mm-hmm. Right. And so 
Black people are the most resilient group of people on earth, physically and psychologically, right? Mm-hmm. Not that we don't have issues and, and need support, but we, I mean, and when you go back to history, this is one of the reasons why we were taken as slaves because mm-hmm. our strength and our ability to withstand the physical labor and the heat and the toil for so many hours at a time. And we were not as susceptible to diseases and, and dying off easily, right? That's the physical resilience that we have. And so we always find a way. And the mm-hmm. more they try to kill us, they're just planting more seeds and we just get stronger and stronger in our community, right? But you go back to all the pieces that contribute to why we think the way we think, why we do the things. We, the food in our community is not the best. We get the scraps, right? Food deserts are real in America. Yes. A lot of people know you go to places. I've been, I told you, I've been to 40 out of 50 states. I've been to so many places where I'm like, the supermarket is where? Or it's, we don't have a supermarket. What do you mean you don't have a supermarket? <laughs> like, no, we you you just go there and you just pick up some stuff and, and everything is rotten, spoiled, mm-hmm. or on its way to becoming that. It's always the lowest grade of food. We all know that food affects your mood. Yes. Food affects your brain development. We have kids coming in the morning with hot Cheetos and one of them little 25 cent quarter waters. I don't know what they cost now. <laughs> you know, growing up. Right. All I ever knew them as quarter waters. No, it could be a dollar twenty-five for all I know right, right. now. So you think about like, so if that's what is part of your diet, that affects your ability, your, your brain functioning. And so, and then on top of that, we don't get the best healthcare. Right. That's the other thing I wanted to mention. You talking about like the nearest school. The next question is where's the nearest like qualified clinic or urgent care or hospital? And can you even get services? Because are you insured? Well, here's here's um, the other thing, right, uh, that's not spoken about is that, yes, we have looked at uh, mental health care in the black community um, as taboo. Right. Like if mm-hmm. like, no one wants to talk about it, it's like you don't need that. No, wrong. you go sit down. Don't pray that away. Right. We think you just pray everything away. In the black community. No one wants to talk about it. But the other thing we don't talk about is that we have a lot of health care providers that don't take insurance. So, at bingo. Hello. Bingo. So they don't take insurance. A lot of people see. And so what ends up happening is we're not getting the services. You don't take the insurance. So if I have insurance, you don't take insurance because that's a whole nother story as to why they don't take insurance. Because then also sometimes they take insurance and then it comes back to the healthcare provider that, oh, this person really didn't need that counseling. There was nothing wrong with them and they don't get paid. So right. that's why a lot of healthcare providers don't take the insurance. They have private practices. If I'm already financially poor, where am I getting the money now to go and pay for counseling and therapy? And the things that I need to help move me along. And so if you and to find one who does take insurance is a a needle in the haystack. And then mm-hmm. if you do find them, the waiting list could be a year long. Exactly. So these uh, mental illnesses just keep mounting. Now you that you start looking at all of the factors. Now we start pulling fathers from homes in order for you to get this healthcare, uh, not healthcare, this uh, supplement from the government to help you pay your rent. A man can't live in the household. Mm-hmm. Right. So we get a lot of our black men being pulled and brown men being pulled out of the household. So we get our women dealing with incarceration. Right. Eighty five percent of juveniles incarcerated are illiterate. Mm-hmm. Seventy to seventy five percent of people, period, incarcerated in this country do not read above a fourth grade level. We are literally grooming people to go from schools to prison without rehabilitation. Why? Because if we rehabilitate them, they don't have, they come out, they don't go back. We lose jobs if these beds are not filled. So we need to keep people employed. So we need to keep people in a cycle where they come out. You can't vote. You can't get a job. You can't do this. You can't, you're then on probation for X amount of years. You sneeze the wrong way. We remand you. Mm -hmm. So there's a prison outside of prison when you're released. Right. And so all of these these pieces When you think about, especially now, the poorer you are, you don't have access to a paid attorney. I don't have access to real food. I don't, I can't really pay the rent. I don't have a a high level of formal education, right? Like, I mean, it's just so many factors that continue to contribute to the levels of stress. Absolutely. And so we all know that the high levels of stress is not healthy. Mm -hmm. And then on top of the unhealthy food you're eating. And I just had this conversation with a with a physician. We I talked about it on last week's episode, based on 
some stuff that happened with Demarcus and I. Um, and the the physician said to me, you know, people know clinical depression, they know clinical anxiety, they know, you know, it's just something with how your brain is wired that you react in this way. But a lot of people don't talk about external stressors mm. that trigger depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And when you experience a traumatic event or a life change or this, that, and the third, that can trigger these things in you. Mm. So when you think about the external stressors that Black people live under mm-hmm. on a daily basis in mm. communities, to your point, all over the country, mm-hmm. it's no wonder that there are mental health issues and mental health issues that are not being addressed. Yeah. And then the way we even talk about them in our, in our families, oh girl, you know, he just, he got a bad temper. Don't set him off. Mm-hmm. Or he's special. You know, the way we kind right. of label people, you yeah. know how uncle is. He just ain't that all there. I'm the Tories line and I come in. You know how uncle so-and-so is. Yes, always. <laughs> no, there's no, you know, there's no understanding. The education is not there mm-hmm. on these issues. Or you get the education and to your point, you try to get help, yeah. but you can't afford it. And if anybody knows anything about the cost of therapy, that is limited. That is limited to a certain segment of the population in a certain class, right? It is. It is just not cheap. It's just yeah. not. So let's talk a little bit more about your story. You mentioned your brother and that hitting home for you, and that also being a driver to the work that you're doing uh, and the documentary, which we're going to delve into more. But talk a little bit about what happened to him. One of the most uh, <laughs> man, I, so many things happen. Um, I'll tell you one of the most outrageous things that happened uh, that still makes me very angry to this day was when he was accused of murdering someone who is still alive to this very day that you and I are speaking. How does that even happen? And, and, and held, okay, incarcerated for two years, okay, behind that. Um, because that's, that's the gross negligence of the criminal injustice system in this country. This is not criminal Ex- justice. This is criminal injustice system. And Explain the, to me how somebody gets well, held for yeah. killing someone who's still alive. Well, it's not hard the darker you are to get caught up like this. It's not hard mm-hmm. at all. And you, we already know there's a lot of research on the books that the darker you are, the harsher the sentencing is. Mm-hmm. And so we get this dark-skinned young Black boy who's an easy target to pin a murder on. Um, you know, this was part of him dropping out of school, being recruited to a gang. And so it's now easy to just tie things and crimes to him. Not saying he's innocent in everything he's ever done, but when it's okay to hold people, he was held for two years for murdering someone that was still alive. I mean, we, we have a disgusting criminal justice system in this country that is okay with doing this to people. Black and brown people, mainly. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, a case that, I mean, obviously took us a couple of years to get him cleared from. uh, Because then, of course, you know, then they go down to, okay, let's then call this attempted murder. And, And then, you know, without getting into the particulars of the case, you know, where the victim's like, this, that, that never happened. No, you can't say that. So now we're going to. We're going to take out the restraining order on your behalf. We, not, we don't even have to ask you so that you and him can't communicate. That was one fight. You know, oh, oh, the other fight is uh, the police just rolling up in the hood, in the park. Kids are in the park playing basketball and, you know, two people were getting, in it, getting into a, whatever it is and whoever they can grab and they grab and they do what they do. Right. They beat him up, busted his face up. And then just left them there on the sidewalk to bleed out. Mm. And someone called an, uh, called for an ambulance for him. And he said, call my sister. Mm. And that was the energy he had left before blacking out. You know, so these, and, and this, people don't get, this is playing basketball while black, entering a right. hotel while black. I mean, there's so many things we can say, blah, 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 while black. Right. Anything, just our mere existence becomes probable cause. Mm-hmm. Just our mere existence. The disgusting piece is when he was placed in the prison across the street from his high school where he could look out the window at his high school. Mm. Is that not psychological torture? Right. 
Absolutely. You know, this country is okay with putting children in prisons with adults. On on average right now, on any given day, we have 4,500 children that are incarcerated in adult prisons. Eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds. You have 13 and 14-year-olds getting life sentences. The human brain doesn't even develop until 25. And I'm glad you said that because people will hear these statistics and think, okay, that's somebody who's 17, about to be 18, and end up in in an adult uh, prison. And then I have to ask them, oh, so you did everything correctly at 17. You made no dumb mistakes, even in your 30s or 40, right? Like, I mean, yeah, when you get to the stage in your life, you're supposed to be a lot more logical. And I don't know a single person who has made all the right decisions in their life before 25. Right. (laughs) What? You're still discovering who you are. And all of us can look back and say, that was really dumb. Like, what was I thinking? Thank you. Let me tell you something. A lot of people don't know most criminals aren't even in prison. They just haven't been caught. That's a fact. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Most criminals are actually not even incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama was not the ideal student. Right. He He got in trouble a lot in school, smoked weed a lot. You don't know who people are going to turn out to be. And I Mm -hmm. always tell teachers, you have no right to write off anyone else's child. But it happens all the time. All the time. We discount people all the time. All the time. And the the documentary was sparked because of the outrage that I've had inside of me after having been to so many cities and states and looking at the injustice that just keeps continues to carry out in school after school after school and the policies that feed into the pipeline. I mean, look at the young man in Texas where they told him, he couldn't graduate unless he cut his locks. What the yes. hell does that have to do with anything? Again, getting us to assimilate to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I've been in situations, you know, you hear about this stuff in education, but then it happens in secret once you get into your professional career. So I've been pulled to the side by another Black person to say, hey, you know that intern in your group or that junior person? I need you to go talk to them about their hair. And go, you know, this is not going to be good for them if they don't do X, Y, and Z, mm. you know. And I'm looking like, okay, I'm not that person, first of all. Like, so, and and who said, did HR come to you? Because that's right. a whole other conversation if they did. Mm-hmm. But no, this is something that you're saying from your place of internalized mm. white supremacy that right. now we've got to pull our sister's coattail mm-hmm. because her hair is not only natural, but a little bit too natural. Right. So this this is happening. Like you hear these stories on the news where yeah. they, you know, it it, it it garners press because this this kid cannot graduate. Mm-hmm. But these things are holding us back. Yeah. At every single turn. The fact that California had to put a law in place that you can't discriminate against somebody's hair. I mean, it, it just blows my mind that this has to become a law. And mm-hmm. so I remember when I was moving up in my career, I've had many people say to me, don't put locks, don't go with locks. You're never going to move up. And that just made me love myself even more. Mm-hmm. That made me just, oh, what? And those people are still where I left them. <laughs> they are still where I left them 17 years ago when they told me not to do my locks. Mm. You're going to, you gonna, you have no choice but to accept all my blackness. Mm-hmm. I'm coming with all of my authentic blackness mm-hmm. and I love me. And when I step in anywhere, I will be seen Absolutely. and I will be heard. And through this documentary is me sharing the story as uh, we selected six cities that we are traveling to across this country to show what the school to prison pipeline looks like. To show people this is not a New York thing. This is not a Jersey thing. This is not a Texas thing. This is a nationwide issue that we must address at the federal level. We must dismantle the school to prison pipeline and the racist policies that uphold it and then rebuild the system. Because anytime you dismantle something, you have to fill it with something positive or something else will fill in that void. Absolutely. So let's get into the documentary a little bit more because I, I want to understand and I want I want our audience to understand where you are in the process. So first, let's name it preschool yep. to prison. Yes. And where are you on the journey 
of putting this together. So from preschool to prison, we already started filming and we filmed already, I should say, in New York City. So we are now uh, at the editing stage of what, you know, we got a lot of interviews in New York City, really great stuff. Uh, we're now at the editing stage to get a trailer and a demo out uh, just so people could kind of get to see a glimpse of what we've already done. We're now uh, fundraising uh, to go to California. We're going to L.A. next. And then mm-hmm. uh, from there, we'll be going to Texas, Alabama and, and the other states that we have, um, other cities we have on the list. And so uh, through through the process, it's really we are really talking to children who have been victims of the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um Parents. I mean, we have correction officers. We have attorneys. I mean, we've interviewed so many people of a vast majority of people. My brother is one of the main leading people that we interviewed, of course, thinking about his story and the journey and and just how many other families have gone through that, but didn't have the resources and the wherewithal to advocate for their child the way I was able to advocate for him and get him and get representation for him, um, you know, to to support what we needed in order to bring him home. And, and thank God he's home now. And he's only home because of my advocacy. He's home because we were able to find an attorney who believed in him, uh, knew the law, and was able to use that to say, whoa, 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 what you're doing here is, you can't do this. You can't mm-hmm. do it, right? And you think about how many other people are going through it, but don't have somebody um, that can do that for them. So, the, you know, this documentary is really going in and and looking at what the school, how the school system is designed and the prison system and looking at how children are literally being funneled from schools to prison. Um, we're also looking at not just how kids are being funneled from school to prison, but also what programs are in place, like what organizations are providing rehabilitative services to reduce the recidivism rate. Uh, for children coming home, reentry is what it's called, uh, because we have most people, uh, I think the number is three out of four. So 75% of people who come home end up being reincarcerated again within less than three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so there's a reason why. So if you you keep cutting off resources and you tell them, well, you were in prison, you can't get a job. Well, how else am I now supposed to? So now I'm going to go back to what I already know how to do, what got me in prison in the first place. Right. So we we cover that aspect as well. Uh, so six cities, we're covering fundraising. We're really excited. Uh, we are now at the point of uh, we are $25,000 short to get to our goal. Uh, so to be able to film in California, we're going to do it. I already know God already put this alignment here. So that money's going to come. Um, but yeah, that's where we are currently. And when I tell you powerful, it's powerful. Uh, there's moments I've had to stop filming during an interview because when to, even though I know these stories, but to hear them again, it, it's going to touch America's soul like no other documentary has. You know, mm-hmm. so we we have, the thing about this documentary from others, when you think about people like Jay-Z and Ava DuVernay, like, you know, Jay-Z partner at the NFL and they are giving a hundred million, they gave a hundred million dollars uh, for criminal justice reform, right? Ava did 13th, right? You so see you, when they see us and you see all these things, but the, the thing that's missing is nobody talks about the catalyst, mm. which is education. Nobody has gone back to the catalyst. And that's what this documentary does. And why do you think nobody has focused on the education piece? They don't know. Hmm. Most people don't even know this is happening in education. Black people, too. I have teachers that don't even know about the school to prison pipeline. They work in education. Wow. Not every teacher knows about it. They don't even know how they're contributing to the pipeline. Because mm-hmm. they, they are coming in for good reasons. You ask every teacher and it's like, I want to make a difference. Or my parent, my mom was a teacher. My grandmother, you know. Well, I just, I'm excited. I always just, from when I was a kid, just always wanted to teach, right? They're coming in for good reasons. You get those that are like, as, as I said again, right? I'm going and save them. <laughs> right. <laughs> for the most part. Which is also prevalent in reentry work. It's a lot of white saviors jumping into reentry too, but that's another episode for another day. Uh, mm-hmm. Just wanted to point that out though. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. So... Yeah. So that, you know, it's going to cover all of those angles, Um, you know, and even though Philadelphia is not one of our cities, but it it just as you were speaking, just made me think about I don't know if you remember this story came out a couple of years ago about a judge in Philadelphia who was sentencing children to jail for really minor things like throwing paper. Right. Yes. Things that kids do. (laughs) One mother became so outraged that she dug and did some research and come to find out he had stocks 
in this particular jail. Mm -hmm. And he was sentencing all of these kids because he's getting kickbacks. Can you imagine a judge is doing, and this was a white mother. This is a white child that he sentenced for throwing paper, right? And then to find that out, it's heinous. It is heinous. And then they end up sentencing him to the the same jail he was sentencing these kids Mm -hmm. to. But you, I mean, that kind of stuff. We can't escape it. We can't escape it. And this documentary is, there's no holding back in it. So we all know I'm a huge, huge, anybody that knows me well, a huge documentary fan is my thing. I watch more (laughs) documentaries than theatrical releases, but it's not something that people get into to make money off of, obviously, but they cost money to make. Mm -hmm. So you talked about just the California leg and the $25,000 price tag. How have you raised the money to date that you've brought in to start producing this? So when I first when God gave me the vision, I was like, I, I don't, I've never made a, a movie before. What, how do, what? I don't know what to do, but I'm obedient. Mm-hmm. And through my obedience and faithfulness, I just started getting connected to different people. And so uh, a friend of mine connected me to a friend of his. And he was like, I think he's the person you need to work with. He is going to love this project. Um, and he immediately fell in love with it. And I brought him on as the producer of the documentary. And we have been working like this for the last year. And when I shared it with him, he was like, oh my gosh, I so want to be a part of this journey. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, he started walking me through because I'm like, you know, I I don't have any idea how to do this. I need your help because he has, you know, he's in the industry and, and has an idea of like the steps I need to take and so forth. And he's produced other uh, documentaries and different types of film. So I said, so he was like, okay, this is what you have to do. You know, we got to do fundraising. We have to do this. And, and so the, the, the traditional route for people has been to uh, use some form of crowdfunding source. Right. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that didn't sit well with me. See, I've never been from when I was child, I have never been the person that goes along with what everybody else does. I've never, that's why I always thought something was wrong with me. Cause I was like, why I don't do what everybody else does? Why I don't think the way everybody else thinks? And so I said to him, I said, I don't want to do crowdfunding. He was like, well, what else you going to do? I said, I'm just going to hold virtual Zoom parties and call them donation parties. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to send out invites and have people accept and have them come and hear about what I want to do and they'll donate. And he was like, uh, Dr. K, I've, I've never done that before. You, uh, I said, I'm very methodical in my thinking. I said, I, I literally, I'm a visionary. So I already saw the end. I could always see the end in mind. And I said, I'm telling you, I, I see it working this way. My spirit is telling me not to do crowdfunding, at least not yet. He said, all right, uh, I'm going to let you, def- I'm a default. You, you, you write it up, however you want to do it. Wrote it up, did it. Um, we held our first one. And on our first call, we raised, the goal was $3,000. Mm-hmm. And we raised 3300 Wow. And I was like, oh man. So I said, I'm going to do another one. And then we did another one. And we surpassed that goal. Within three weeks, we raised $17,000. Wow. Just literally me literally going through my phone book mm-hmm. and saying, hey, 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 can you come to the Zoom this virtual, I'm doing a virtual donation party. I want to do a document. I want to tell you what it's about and give whatever you can give. Wow. And that, that is literally how it went. And then people just started donating. So you've got to do this now for and multiple did. cities. Yep. Mm-hmm. So every city we have to raise funds. So we raised the funds and it got us to New York. Mm. So how do you keep your spirit healthy with all of this information right yeah. coming at you? And, and one of the things that DeMarcus and I always talk about is the more you know, the more rage you can have, right? When you really dig into these systemic issues and structural inequality, it can call some stuff up in you that you didn't know was there. So how do you maintain some semblance of peace? I play hard. I vacation a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a lot of me time. I meditate. I pray. But also the people around me has to be for me. Mm -hmm. If I don't keep anyone around me who is not in alignment with my spirit and my journey, and my spirit is strong, when I'm sitting in somebody's presence, if my spirit is disturbed when I'm sitting in your presence, you do not have a seat. You do not get to stay in my circle. Mm -hmm. So for me, water, I didn't realize how uh, therapeutic water is for me. So going to the beach, 
the water, the sun, hearing the waves crashing is extremely therapeutic for me. So I take lots of vacations and I spend a lot of time sitting in the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that that vitamin D deficiency in our community is huge and it affects our happiness. We got a lot of people in the North that are depressed. Absolutely. And most people are not even getting tested for vitamin D deficiency, but most of us have it. Yep. We don't even know we're depressed. People getting those prescriptions for those sun lamps. Yeah. (laughs) Because we see depression as I'm sad or I'm crying all the time, you know, or I can't Mm -hmm. get out of bed, not realizing there are many indicators of depression that if you're not trained to know them, you may not even know that you're suffering from symptoms. But again, that's a lack of education. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you managing uh, (laughs) COVID? Uh, and the limitations on travel right now? Uh, for, well, for me, obviously, like through the reading of like where I can go, can't go. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, just still taking the same precautions wherever I go mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that I'm protecting myself, but also the other people around me is the most responsible thing to do. And then normally when I get back home, I, I uh, self-quarantine. Absolutely. I, I self-quarantine when it wasn't COVID, okay? Like, I'm... <laughs> I value my me time. People don't know I hear that. you. I'm, I'm, a lot of people don't know that secret about me that I'm very much so an introvert, extrovert. Mm-hmm. Very much so. My alone time is my peace of mind time. And I'm the person who could stay indoors for days in a row and not even go check the mailbox and I'll be just fine. As long as that's shining through my window, I am just fine. People think that being an introvert means you don't, you're not talkative. You don't like being around people. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that it's where you draw your energy or how you draw yes. your energy. And most yeah. introverts, especially in the work that you're doing, both from the actual production aspect, but what it takes to pull something like this off, the fundraising aspect, the conversations, the networking, that takes a lot out of you. And that's a lot of stimulation. And for yes. an introverted, introverted personality, you do need, if you're coming off that, you might need five, six days yes. of uninterrupted solitude. And that's me. Mm-hmm. I, there are times I just put the do not disturb on my phone. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad we slid in. Oh, yeah. I'm like, because <laughs> I this was and you know what? For me, it's like I can talk about this all the time. But normally, like this is my day. Mm-hmm. This is my day. This is my mm-hmm. piece. So shifting gears, mm-hmm. describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oh, man. I think about I, I have a lot of those days. <laughs> um. But I do think about one of the times when my brother was incarcerated and I didn't know if he was okay because at any moment, the prison could go on lockdown. At any moment, anybody could be thrown into solitary. Um, They have different names for the shoe, the box, you know, all these different names, but you just don't know. And they don't call your family and be like, yep, they're in solitary and they can't talk to the outside world for the next 90 days. Right. So I remember one of the prisons that he was in, I I couldn't talk to him. I didn't. I was called. I called there so much that they realized they they started to know my voice. And um, I remember, you know, you always get that asshole that answers. But there were some compassionate COs that answered, uh, which restored my faith in COs and humanity, because there were a couple that were like, I'll help you out. There were others that would just be like, well, I don't know what to tell you and hang up the phone on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody would tell me if he's okay. I'm like, I just want to know, is he okay? Right? And so the rage in me, the mama bear in me said, well, guess who's booking a flight up there? I'm going to go see my baby. Oh, I'm going to see him. And I already put it in my mind. I was going to go see him. Because first things first, you know, you know, you you need to get clearance in order to even do visitation. So my clearance paperwork was already in the system. Oh, y'all don't want to tell me where he at? I'm going to show up. I'm going to just show up. I took three planes to see him. Where were you coming from? Florida. Coming from Florida. Uh I had to take three planes. (laughs) It was a snowstorm. The last flight that would get me closest to the facility was delayed, 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 canceled. So now I'm sitting... One hour delayed, two hour delayed, five hours delayed, canceled. So I'm enraged because I'm like, I'm going to see him. It's late at night. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I got to get there to see him to know he's okay. Ended up staying at a hotel that night. I get up in the morning, go back to the airport. And then it's like, 
delay. I see all these delays. I said, God, I'm not doing this today. What do you need me to do? Because I'm going to see him today. I was, or when I'm determined, my mind is made up, oh, it's going to happen. I said, nope, today's the day I'm going to see him. And God said, just go rent a car. This flight going to get canceled. I went, rented a car, and then drove three and a half hours mm. to go see him. And they ended up canceling that flight. I would have been so mad if I sat there. My spirit is so strong. I felt, so I get to the facility and I said to the lady, I need to see him. I came from this far. I, I said, nobody would tell me if he's okay. I just need to see him. Can I do visitation with him today? And sure enough, they let me do five hours of visitation with him. Five hours. Five hours. Five hours. Somebody really needs to unpack the maternal nature of an older sister as well. As as one, I, I, I that, that's some cultural things there as well with yeah. us that I, I would like to explore because you really do function like a mother in a lot of ways, particularly mm-hmm. if you grew up in a single parent household. Yes. Yeah. Him and I are the closest in the family. We are like mm. this. I remember... I remember my parents asking permission <laughs> on what to do with him. Like, I, I was that protective. You can't take him. Where you taking him? You can't take him there. <laughs> to this day, my mother laughed. She said, you were something else. <laughs> Especially with that 14-year difference. Like, he literally could have been your son. hmm Yeah. People have asked me secretly, do you sure you're not him? Because <laughs> that happens, too. Yeah. Play oh. brother and sister, but really. Uh... Uh, I'm like, no, he's really my brother. He's just like my son. <laughs> but yeah, so, so th- 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 that was being extraordinary on an ordinary day. So in a perfect world, when would you like to see this documentary completed and released? Man, listen, I'm going to tell you, I really want to see this documentary completed by the end of this year and released okay. at the beginning of 22. That's ideal. Mm-hmm. That is because the footage is so much and it really needs to uh, show the boldness, the intensity, the humility, the rawness, the vulnerability that every subject brings to the documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I want to make sure that I'm partnered with the right editor, the right team to to get all of that, to show all of that to everybody. And ideally, where would you like to see it released? Licensed through a major network or just independently put out there? Yeah, so I I would like to see it uh, licensed through a major network. Um, mm-hmm. We did want to, that the goal was to do the festival run, of course. Um, but I want to get this in every household. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to have any barriers to being able to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the circles that I run in Black and white and how naive people are to these issues. It's so, so needed. And I know people say like, I do my work. I'm so passionate about it. Even if I just put it up on a website, then that's all that matters. This is something that needs to be disseminated far and wide. And, and I believe it will spark conversations about remediation. Now, now how do we fix it? It's one thing to talk about how heinous it is. And this is, this is tragic. But how do we start to look at reformative steps so that the next generation is not having the same conversation? Oh, I have a whole write-up. I mean, and this is why I said that nobody else is better fit to tell this story because mm-hmm. it's not just my professional experience, but this is personal. And, mm-hmm. and I can talk about the jails I've been to across New York City, the prisons I've been to, right? I mean, all of these things to talk about the experience, what I've seen in all of these schools, doing policy work with the government. I mean, I'm covering so many angles and have had the experience in all of these areas that no one else can dare tell the story the way I, mm-hmm. because they and it's, don't have that experience. And it's multifaceted and people get caught up in like the Googles of the world. Oh, you know, we're sponsoring a STEM program and, you know, we're exposing kids to coding, but there's so many other layers that need to be addressed. And, oh, and that, all that's great, but like just exposing kids to science technology is one facet of a multifaceted issue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, it's a documentary project because of the revamp of the educational system using it as an educational tool in universities. Um, mm-hmm. This needs to be, it's going to be part of every teacher prep program, every leadership prep program. It, I mean, there's so many things that I've already curated for it to not to for it to go beyond a film. It's not you watch, oh, great. No, this is to get people to a place of action. This is not just to watch and get in your feelings. Oh my God, I can't watch anymore. No, this is, this is designed to get people into action. 
because we cannot see this and just go on with your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. It is now, what do you do next? And that's part of the learning that comes from this uh, docu-series, you know, because it's, it's like helping parents, whether you have children or not, you still have a responsibility too. Everybody has a responsibility on how they can support getting change, repealing a lot of these laws and policies in place that uphold these racist practices. Absolutely. And for people who want to learn more about the work that you do, more about the documentary, how they can support financially or otherwise, where can they find that? Um, They can definitely go to the Preschool to Prison Documentary Project Facebook page. It's called Preschool to Prison Documentary Project. When we started the page, we had like three followers and then Within a week or two, we had over a thousand followers mm-hmm. and it was just like, you know, getting private messages from strangers saying, thank you for doing this. And so it just reaffirmed for me, like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing God's work. And this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is my calling here. At least one Listen, of them. Listen, I'm excited. So, yeah. I'm, I'm confident. DeMarcus and I, of course, are going to be having conversations with you about how we can help, yeah. how we can support. This is, this is important work. And it it's, Many parts of the stories that you you told without us saying it hit home for us. Yeah. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that the 25 grand is coming for California. There's no doubt in my mind that the rest of the money is coming to complete this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, listen, I'm just going to say I'll see you in award season. So, you know, uh, <laughs> award season, maybe it's 2022. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I can say you were on the show. You know, we, we had the conversation before the documentary even dropped. This is this is going to be big. I, I feel that for you. I know you already know it, um, but I'm confident that this is something special in the works and we're here to help and do what we can for sure. I appreciate that so much. Um, and, you know, it has to be told, it, it has to be done. And so that is my give back to our community, uh, to our society. And so, you know, I would love for also we do have a website. Uh, We've also turned a documentary into an LLC. So because this is long term, Mm -hmm. uh, this is not short term. This is definitely long term. And uh, if people can go to www.preschool2, the number two, prison.com and learn more. And through the website, they can make a donation. Absolutely. So listen, December 26ers, you heard it here. You know, we care about important issues. We Mm -hmm. care about supporting our own. If this has resonated with you in any way, even if it hasn't, go online. And trust me, I know our listenership and our base, it has. Go online, (laughs) check out the work that Dr. K is doing. If you can support financially, do so. If you can spread the word, do so. If nothing else, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about this episode. We've said it time and time again. Mm -hmm. We all we got. We have to support each other. And as always, you know the drill. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 